This podcast is brought to you by Alex Partners. New and accelerating disruptions from new technologies to geopolitical conflict to a warming planet are buffeting business daily. Are you ready? Read more in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index online today at disruption.alexpartners.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor at Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about healthcare trends and healthcare investing. My guest is Josh Nathan Cases, Barron's healthcare reporter. Just a, a word to say we began Barron's Live three years ago as a daily healthcare-focused call at the start of the COVID pandemic. Barron's Live, Barron's Live has evolved into so much more since then, of course. And today, May 11th, the U.S. public health emergency officially ends. What a journey and what a miracle that is. Josh is going to explain just what the emergency's ending means and take a look at other big news in the healthcare market. And I assure you, Barron's Live will go on. Nothing ending here, right, Josh? That's right. Good to be here. Good to talk to you. All right. Terrific. So COVID is still with us, but the emergency is over. What should investors know about that? Yeah, so look, the, the U.S. government emergency ended here. The World Health Organization ended there. Um, uh, emergency uh, last week on May the 4th. Um, uh, you know, practically in the U.S., what does this mean? Uh, there's a number of things that people might notice. You know, the federal government, as we've talked about a lot, is no longer in the business of buying uh, or distributing COVID-19 vaccines and therapeutics. I suppose there's still, you know, leftover vaccine um, and, and therapeutics in the stockpiles, but they're not going to make new purchases as far as we understand. Um, you know, an important thing for people who are used to getting these COVID tests with no copays on the streets, uh, at least, you know, they have these pop-up uh, COVID testing stands. From, from now on, private insurance will no, private insurers will no longer be required to cover COVID tests without copays. Um, you know, the EUAs, the emergency use authorizations under which a lot of stuff had been available, those won't change. There are certain telehealth flexibilities that, that won't change. There are very important implications for Medicaid, re- uh, Medicaid enrollment, um, you know, sort of maybe less important, a lot of the, 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 the COVID data tracking that has happened will end or ease up. The CDC is losing certain authorities <laughs> to collect data. Um, that, that said, we do have some new data, which basically says that things are remain pretty good from a COVID perspective. Hospitalizations are at a relatively low level. They're pretty flat. Cases are down. Weekly deaths are down about 11%. Um, the next thing to watch here is in mid-June, the FDA's convening its advisory panel to talk about the strategy for fall boosters, uh, if they're going to recommend that the vaccine makers change the makeup of their their vaccines. They have updated bivalent versions available for the fall. Uh, That'll all happen at a meeting in mid-June. Any sense of where the vaccine situation is going? No, I mean, I think the expectation is that there will be an updated version of the vaccine tailored to the more recently circulating variants that will be available in the fall, and that uptake will be vastly lower um, in 2023 than it was in 2022, or or, uh, certainly 2021. Which may not be such a good thing, after all. 
Uh, I mean, yeah, it's hard for to have a value judgment at this point. I think um, we just need to see, you know, what the experience of this virus means for for Americans and people around the world over the next few months. Uh, you know, I, I, and I think I, I don't know what the CDC recommendations are going to be in terms of what populations should and shouldn't get boosters. Okay, we'll be watching that and we'll be covering that. So let's look at biotech for a moment. We had a big week for biotech with an IPO and acquisition and positive drug data. That trifecta helped put a bid under biotech stocks. And I would say it's about time since most stocks have had a terrible time over the last year and most are still far below their one-time highs. So let's go through the news and then take a broader look at the biotech sector. I mean, biotech investors wait for a couple of things, right? For for M&A, um, for IPOs, and for good data. And all of that happened in the past couple of weeks. There was a, you know, we haven't had much biotech, many biotech IPO, IPOs at all um, over the last, what, year or so. Uh, and there was a big one last week, uh, immunology-focused drug maker called Acelerin. Um, their shares traded up 30% after the IPO, the day of the IPO. They raised uh, about half a billion dollars. I mean, that was a very, very large uh, biotech IPO for, for 2023. And, um, you know, not we something we've seen. It's been a terrible year for IPOs in general. Yes, right. I don't mean to minimize the, yeah. the context here. But, but you know, for biotech-focused investors, you know, I think IPOs are particularly important, right, for, for the normal biotech lifecycle because these companies need to raise, you know, a billion dollars more to get their first drugs to the market. Um, and so they do some of that in the private markets, but then they rely on access to the public markets to survive in the many years that it takes to become a revenue generating company. Um, and without access to the public markets, without an ability to IPO, um, you know, companies need uh, begin to uh, run out of options. We've seen a lot of that over the last few months. But before we get to that, I mean, we should say there was there was positive data on on Lilly, particularly in, in both obesity and Alzheimer's, the two sort of biggest or two of the biggest indications out there, um, you know, suggesting progress in those areas, which is, I think, generally good for biotech. And the week before that, there was a $6 billion acquisition announce of a company called Astellas. I'm sorry, I have a company called Iveric Bio by uh, Astellas Pharma. And all of that together, you know, drove up the uh, the most closely watched uh, biotech ETF. It's called the XBI. It was up 5% last week. And now it's it's in the it, it's up actually on the year up 2.4 percent so far this year, but you know I, it's still not enough to fix the problems facing the sector. And as I was talking about a minute ago, you know one of the problems here is not only is it is it hard for these companies to IPO, but but once they are public, it's hard for them to raise more money given what's happened to the valuations since the peak in early 2021. Um, you know, the, the XBI is down 50% since February 2021, and companies just can't afford to raise um, money. And, and, and part of the issue here, of course, is that high interest rates means that there's not a lot of appetite among investors for speculative bets like early stage biotech. Um, it is kind of a shame when you consider how much is happening on the science front. More than sure. a shame. Um, y yes and no, right? I mean, I think there's also an argument that too many companies came public. That's for sure, uh, too. In, in 2021, 2022, and there was a glut, companies that maybe um, weren't ready for the public markets, companies whose science wasn't, I mean, there was so many biotechs IPOing and so many of those IPOs did so well, you know, investors weren't able, in some cases, I think, to do the due diligence that maybe they, they like to do in general uh, during that very frenetic time. Um, and 
so we we have a situation I think where there's uh, I think a thinking is that there's a lot of potentially sort of low quality biotechs out there um, on the public markets that that's that slip through. Now that doesn't mean that it's the low quality ones that are now laying off and laying off staff. And I think part of the problem is that regardless of whether your science is good or bad, if you don't have you know new data coming in the near term or big you know deals to announce with big pharma big pharma partners, um, not not M and A necessarily, just like business development type partnerships, um, you know, there's not a lot of catalysts out there to move your stock and not a lot of reasons or ability to raise money. And so it's been, that's been catching up over the past year with a number of biotechs. And you've seen layoffs just this week from EQRX and Novavax, each of which have had their issues, which um, we can or can't go into. But, you know, before that, selective biosciences, Sangabo Therapeutics, Nectar Therapeutics, these are all, um, you know, well-known um, biotechs that uh, just in the last month have had pretty substantial layoffs. So, you know, the, the question really is, where does this all end? And and is there going to be a moment when when these biotechs can begin to raise money again, when investors get interested again? There's an analyst named Michael Yee Jeffries, who tracks this stuff very closely. He says that he expects a bit of a resurgence in the XBI by, by the end of the year. He says that if investors expect rates to drop in 2024, you know, the, he, he says that biotech, you know, in anticipation of that, should start trending up to the second half of this year. You know, the question is, if he is right, whether that's soon enough for some of these biotechs that, um, you know, uh, only have a certain amount of capital to work with. Well, we're going to have our healthcare roundtable as usual in September, and I can't wait to hear what the experts say then. Yeah, that should be hopefully, really interesting. Hopefully the market will have firmed a bit. So on the hopeful side of the ledger, there have been some recent glimmers of hope in Alzheimer's treatments from Lilly and Biogen ISI. Please bring us up to date on those. I know our yeah. listeners are interested. So people will remember, I think, the whole uh, Agilehelm saga of um, uh, you know, 2021, 2022, where, where Biogen with his partner ISI put out, got, a, got approval on an accelerated basis for this Alzheimer's drug, um, Agilehelm. But there was a tremendous amount of questioning from um, scientific experts and from investors and, uh, and from Medicare about how good the data was supporting that drug. And it, it didn't get, uh, it, it, Medicare essentially said it wasn't going to pay for it. What's happened since then is is interesting. You know, uh, people will recall at the end of last year, Bajan and Asai had a, a data on a, on a second similar drug called Lecanemab that got accelerated approval early this year. Um, now it's got the, uh, it's, it's being marketed under the name Lakembi. Um, what happened recently, it was last week, I think it's actually two weeks ago, um, is that Eli Lilly put out their data on another similar drug called Inanimab. People have been waiting for this for a very long time. And, um, you know, the, 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 the underlying theory behind all of these drugs, is sort of the amyloid hypothesis, which is that you can that there's a connection between these amyloid brain plaques and you know um, loss of cognitive function, and if you clear those brain plaques, you can slow the decline of cognitive function. I think that after the Agilehelm debacle, um, you know, scientists were basically running out of faith that the uh, amyloid hypothesis was correct, and the Lakembi results last year were the first to really show actually no this this might really be a thing. So. The other week when uh, Lily put out their data, it was positive, and I think it's further evidence that 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 big pharma, in particular, was not you know barking up the entirely wrong tree, was not in the whole wrong forest uh, for mm -hmm. many many decades. Um, 
So this data, I think, was better than expected. It slowed cognitive decline. The sort of top line slowing of the cognitive decline number was higher than the number for the Biogen drug. However, the safety signals, I think, were a little bit more concerning. There's this condition called ARIA um, that is connected with this type of drug. It's sort of, um, uh, it's a type of brain swelling. It's, it's pretty bad. Um, in some cases, it's not always symptomatic. Rates of ARIA were higher in this trial than in the Lakembi trial, and notably, um, two deaths in the, the Nanomap trial were attributed to the condition, and a third person died after having a serious case. So, you know, what does this all mean? I mean, I think this is not, this is, you know, pretty good news, I think, for Biogen and ASI, um, sort of helps firm up the scientific argument that their drug should work. Um, I think there's an argument that, uh, you know, the, the safety differences were probably um, not, not where might, might tilt the balance a little bit if these two drugs make its market um, in favor of 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 uh, the Kembi, the Biogen drug. I should say we only have the top line data from excuse me from the press release. We don't have the actual you know mm -hmm. full results of this trial. The state of play now here is that um, Biogen and ASI are waiting for full approval of the Kembi. Um, Lily now has to ask for. For, for approval of the Nanomab. The big problem, the big question is whether Medicare is going to pay. You know, virtually every person being treated for Alzheimer's disease or who has Alzheimer's disease in this country is covered by Medicare. Um, and when faced with the Agilehelm data, Medicare did a pretty unusual thing where they said, we're not going to pay for this essentially at all under accelerated approval. If you get full approval, we'll pay for it. Certain conditions under certain kinds of studies we approve. Um, and, you know, the companies have been pushing for Medicare to loosen that. Um, and they say with full approval, you should pay for the drug like you do with any other drug or just about any other drug. You know, Medicare has said, um, I, you know, we're, we're sticking to our, our, our guns here. We're sticking to the decision we made around uh, edge of health. Um, and, and, you know, they've been pressed pretty hard on this. It's become a pretty political issue. The, um, the head of the of CMS, the agency that oversees Medicare, has been um, gotten pretty tough questioning on the Hill, I guess, two weeks ago. Um, we asked them, you know, whether the Nanomab data would change their mind. And they said a number of things. But among the things that they said was they're planning to release information essentially on, on those approved trials that people would need to be enrolled in to get the drug paid for once they're fully approved. Um, so that suggests to me that they're definitely moving forward with their plan of not fully covering these drugs. Um, you know, and, and I think that uh, there's a lot of questions about how the restrictive these trials will be, um, what it'll really mean, what it'll mean for uptake, what it'll mean for accessibility. We're, we're in a period here of a lot of confusion and also I think a lot of complexity. You know, these aren't, uh, these are complicated drugs for complicated conditions. There's all sorts of screening that has to be done before and after, all sorts of infrastructure that needs to be set up. Um, so, and I think all sorts of questions, you know, um, there will be an advisory committee hearing before, uh, Lakembi is before the FDA decides whether to fully approve Lakembi. And people will remember that that advisory committee voted against approval of Agilehelm and the FDA overruled them. But, um, you know, I think it'll be a very closely watched and contentious hearing. I think while the data does seem to show that Lakembi slowed cognitive decline, um, there's there's questions about, you know, in clinical practice, how noticeable that slowing will be. 
and um, whether it's worth what appear to be, you know, the risks related to this area condition. So very complicated situation. Um, generally, probably good news, um, but I still think there's questions to be answered about exactly what the slowing in clinical decline that these um, drugs uh, seem to be able to achieve, what it actually means in clinical practice. So we have a combination of hopeful news, politics, and um, no definitive cure in sight. Well, these, these are certainly not a cure. Absolutely not. Yes. You know, these, these will slow decline, which, you know, I think that's a good thing, but, um, sure. but, but what a, what a morass. And I know you're going to be covering this and you've done it so well so far. And we should say so, the stakes are incredibly high. This is a, you know, as everyone, no one needs to be reminded a devastating disease, but one that, right. that affects millions, I mean, truly, you know, 6 million people in this country right now. Right. And especially with the boomer population aging, it's, exactly. we're going to hear a lot more about it. So let's turn to truly happy news, and that is weight loss drugs. Lilly has been the name to beat in healthcare and pharma. Maybe in the stock market generally, the shares were up 49% in the past year, propelled by the success of Munjaro, which is the company's diabetes drug. It also seems to fight obesity, and now the company will be asking the FDA for approval to market the drug as an obesity treatment. Tell us what that means for Lilly, what it means for the market, and what it means for the company's stock. Yeah, and you know we've talked about this before. I think on this show, yes. I mean, these these drugs, Manjaro and, and Novo, similar drug, Novo Nordisk's similar drug, Ozempic, are you know sort of culture redefining in, right. in, in the way in a way in which you know only some drugs ever are. You can think about Prozac, Prozac, and you know the the um, the birth control pill, and um, you know Viagra. Like some, there there was always you know a couple. There are a couple of drugs that sort of cross over the pharmacy counter and become these cultural phenomena. And, and these new obesity drugs certainly have done that in, in a relatively short time. So, you know, currently the state, the, I mean, it, it, the, a lot of words are used interchangeably here, but we should point out, so there's two companies, right? There's Novo and there's Lilly. Lilly has one drug. Uh, its name is uh, Terzepatide. It's currently sold as a type two diabetes treatment under the name Manjaro. Um, they had new weight loss data the other week that um, now will allow them to ask for approval of Manjaro as an obesity treatment. And, you know, last year, the the you know, the, the study that, that Lily reported where um, patients lost like 20% of their weight on that drug um, sort of catapulted this category of drugs into the national con consciousness in a pretty dramatic way. The, the other company involved here, right, is is, is Novo Nordisk. Uh, they have a number of versions of their drug semaglutide on the market and approved. Um, there's Wagovi, which is the weight loss version, uh, Ozempic, which is the diabetes version. And there's also a pill, I believe it's called Rebelsis. Um, th these are all the same thing, um, but uh, just in different formulations, essentially. The, 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 the issue is, there's a number of, of issues for these drugs. You know, number one is um, just in the short term, there have been supply issues because of the demand. Uh, the, the bigger issue is really who's going to pay. You know, for, for diabetes, these work like just about any other drug, right? You know, the companies will negotiate to get these onto formularies and they'll get covered more and more over time. Um, you know, often new drugs don't show up right away, but it happens over the course of years with negotiations and, and, and other things. Um, for, for obesity, there's a separate issue. I mean, I think a lot of insurers won't 
cover weight loss drugs. I think there, this is a due to sort of lingering debates about whether obesity is a disease. Um, in fact, Medicare is essentially not allowed to pay for weight loss drugs. Um, so in order to get these drugs covered, the companies are going to need to do some things. Most likely, they'll need to prove that in addition to cutting weight, the drugs also improve health outcomes, particularly you know, lower the risk of heart attack and stroke. So Nova Nordisk has a study ongoing that should report later this year about their drug, whether it report, reduces heart attack and stroke um, in people who are overweight but, but don't have type 2 diabetes. Um, uh, Lily's running one as well, uh, but we won't know the results of that one for a while. You know, I mean, you'll hear sort of credible projections about total sales potential for these drugs. There was an analyst last year who put out a note arguing that the Lilly drug can be a $100 billion a year drug. You know, right now, the, the biggest selling uh, pharmaceutical in history was uh, is Humira at 20 something billion. I guess the COVID vaccine sold a bit more, but you know, that, that, that aside, um, his projections are not in line with others. But, but you know, we're, we're talking about a very large market. We're talking about relatively high-priced drugs, and um, uh, so so I think that is what's driving some of the investor enthusiasm that we've seen here. Um, you know, the, there there are other risks to think about. You know, one is IRA price negotiations. You know, that there's the um, a new law passed last year that'll allow Medicare to negotiate for drug prices. The the Novo drug could be up for negotiation as soon as 2027. That could cut Medicare prices. We, we don't know enough about how those negotiations are going to work to know whether those lower prices will leak over into the public, private insurance markets. Um, you know whether that lowering price would also impact the price that Lilly is able to get from Manjaro or, or or whatever its obesity drug is marketed as. Um, you know Lilly says they're doing head-to-head -head study between weight loss head-to-head -head weight loss study between Manjaro. Uh, their, their drug and the Novo drug. And if they can prove it's better, that, that might allow them to maintain their pricing even after IRA price reductions kick in. But, you know, we, we, we had a feature last week that ended up saying that Lily remained a good bet. Um, I'd actually been sort of skeptical ahead of the Alzheimer's readout. I did not expect that to be positive. Um, and I had sort of imagined that Lily's shares would drop on that failure of that trial. I was wrong. Uh, the trial was positive. The stock did not drop. Um, and so this piece ended up arguing that, you know, you sort of can't beat the projected earnings growth for Lilly. And, you know, there's a pretty impressive pipeline, not just, not only, um, a number of other obesity drugs, but also this, the Alzheimer's drug, there's a cancer drug. I mean, there's just a lot going on there. Now we should point out Lilly's market value is now above $400 billion. Johnson and Johnson has a market value of $420 billion. Now Johnson Johnson is in the midst of a spinoff, but they still own most of the company they spun off. So that 420 billion is basically representative of the whole the whole business as of two weeks ago. And uh, you know, their revenues in 2022 were three times Lily's revenue. So just to give you a sense of like, you know, how um how enthusiastic investors are uh, uh, about this. It's pretty pretty remarkable. No pure play by a pharma company has ever had a market value of 400 billion dollars before. It's amazing when you consider that they're deeply involved in the Alzheimer's space and now in the diabetes and weight loss space. And as you mentioned, the pipeline is pretty attractive behind all of them. Definitely yeah. a company to watch. I thought you were going to tell me the market cap was bigger than Apple, but I'm just no, kidding. No, not quite. But it, what it is, <laughs> I think it's the, I mean, 
you know, J&J, their market cap will fall once they've finished their, you know, the, all the mechanics re related to the spinoff, presumably. Um, right. But, uh, you know, United Healthcare is bigger, but not that much bigger. It's, it's one of the biggest healthcare, I mean, one of the two biggest healthcare stocks putting aside J&J for now. So I wanted to move on to the J&J spinoff for a moment. The company finally spun off its consumer products business as a new company called Kenview. The ticker is KVUE. The IPO was a big hit, just as Barron's predicted, I guess, you know, two weekends ago, was that? I think that's right, yeah. And what is now ahead for the company, for the spun-off company Kenview and other consumer health spin-offs? Monica asks, what do you see for the future of J&J &J and the spin-off Kenview? Yeah, so, I mean, just practically, um, Kenview is still almost entirely owned by J&J, &J. Um, the, the IPO performed very well. It jumped 17%, um, after pricing near the high end of its range. Um, JJ is eventually going to give its holding its shares of Kenview, um, to its shareholders. Uh, I don't think we know exactly how they're going to do that. Um, but then kind we'll have sort of, what kind of complicated. Yeah. 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 Um, but then we'll have a clear sense, I think of. I, I just imagine that maybe the tra trading dynamics will be a little odd until that happens, although maybe not. Um, anyway, you know, can you sell some of the biggest consumer health brands in the world? Uh, Tylenol, Motrin, Benadryl, half of what's in your uh, pharmacy, you know, in your in your medicine cabinet right now. Um, th there's another publicly traded, you know, branded consumer health company. It went public last year. It's called Halion. Uh, its market value is now about $39 billion. Kenview's is about... 49 billion. Halion sells everything that Kenview doesn't. You know, I mean, they sell Advil, Band-Aids, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I think, you know, what's happening now is that this, these two companies have created like a, you know, a new healthcare subsector that didn't really exist anymore. I mean, historically, these sorts of products were, you know, either part of the portfolios of big consumer products companies or, you know, tucked into pharmaceutical company portfolios. And now, um, you know, we're sort of learning how investors value these things. So it's kind of interesting. I think the, the dynamics between these two companies will be kind of interesting. Um, Helion uh, shares are down about 1% today. Just as we're talking, I'm seeing that, um, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, I'm trying to give you some up-to-date here. But, up to um, the minute info. <laughs> maybe, uh, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, the issue with Helion is that its shares a large part of its flow was still owned by the company that's the companies that owned it before it's been out last year um gsk and pfizer i believe gsk is um selling uh, some of its shares today um so that might allow that company to trade you know it'd been trading with the overhang of not knowing when these sales were going to happen so once that once those trades begin to happen we also might get a clear sense of really how investors value those stocks so to stay on the subject of spinoffs amira asks a question um, noting that Merck spun off its consumer drugs, J&J &J now has IPO'd its consumer business. Um, even beyond the pharma business, GE spun out GE Healthcare. And the question is, how do you know what to keep in your portfolio? The parent company, the spun off company, or both? I would say it depends what kind of investor you are, what you're looking for. But do you have any thoughts about that? No, look, I mean, I think it's just important to pay attention, right? I think it's so easy just to hold whatever turns up, especially if it's, if you're not tracking these things every day, but, you know, Merck and, and, um, Organon have 
uh, very different profiles. They're very different companies, and it may not fit in your your portfolio in the same way. Uh, same thing with J and J. You know, you get a new new CEO, new board, new you know new valuation. With J and J, you know these the performance of the unit that's now Kenview never had like a you know it was sort of buried within stuff that investors found much more material. Um, so it's going to trade very differently now. And um, I think just the, the only thing to say is to sort of pay attention and think about them as, as now entirely separate companies and separate opportunities. Well, trade more, I presume, like a defensive name as opposed to a big growth stock. Uh, yeah, well, right. I mean, well, uh, it depends on the profile of the investor. What you're right, right. And, and, you know, yeah, exactly. So. Um, but good question, and and keep asking things like that. Um, we had a question from Mark. He wanted to know: Do you have any comments on Pfizer's pipeline, its recent acquisitions, and the stock? I know the company reported recently earnings. Yeah, yeah. We we um, you know I think um, they reported earnings. Was this was again? This was last week. No, I'm sorry. This was two weeks ago, right? I mean, they they beat revenue expectations, um, driven by higher than expected COVID sales. Um, I think there was an important strategic announcement that they that they made, and they reiterated in a conversation with us the day of earnings. Um, you know, they'd been spending a lot of the cash that they built up throughout the pandemic on M and A. You know, dealing with this patent cliff that's coming up for them at the end of the decade, where they're going to lose something like seventeen billion dollars in annual revenues uh, over the course of a couple of years. Um, and they, I think they think they're basically done with the M&A that they need to do to make up for that. And so they're shifting to um, buybacks and uh, dividends um, and sort of allowing their bets, including the CGEN bet, which is a big, big acquisition for them to play out. Um, so I think, you know, that's that seems important. They've been, you know, out there making a string of pretty big acquisitions. And now I think it's it's important to note that they may not be doing that anymore. Right, right. And now it's payoff time for the acquisitions. Exactly. So we had a question from Ron about the healthcare plans of companies like Amazon and Walgreens. Is there much insight you can offer in that area? So uh, what's the question? Uh, the, um, what are the healthcare plans? Um, oh, oh, sorry. I thought you were <laughs> no, no, asking about like, their, their, their uh, insurance offerings for their uh, employees. Right, right, right. <laughs> No, you're you're asking what what the companies are going to do to. Yeah, well, no, like, I'm not. I'm not asking what they offer their employees in terms of healthcare plans. <laughs> <laughs> I'm offering. I'm asking, or or I should say, Rod is asking, what are these companies attempting to do? What's new there in terms of building healthcare businesses? Yeah, these are different. Three different companies doing different things. I mean, one of the big questions hanging over healthcare investors that gets them very anxious every couple of years is what big tech is going to do. And I think people got a little worried when Amazon uh, made its one medical acquisition last year. Um, you know, uh, I think there's been years of speculation about exactly how Amazon is going to get involved in the healthcare space and what it's going to mean. Um, and people can keep speculating, but for now they seem to be pursuing this uh, uh, primary care service uh, that they've, they've bought, uh, you know, um, and as for the Mark Cuban thing, you know, this sort of low-cost uh, drug pharmacy is super interesting, I think, waiting to see how it scales and what kind of impact it has. 
Okay. And we had a question from Glover. Is there a way to kind of assess among medical equipment makers, pharma companies, and biotech, which are likely to be the best performers over the, or which sector is likely to be the best performer <clears throat> over the next year or two? I don't know. I think it'd be hard to say it's, you know, medical equipment or biotech, but um, uh, I think it sort of depends on uh, what happens with with rates, what happens with the broader economic environment. Um, I would say pharma seems like the safest, but I'm, I it's sort of these are these are difficult questions. Right. It it does seem like the safest, but that doesn't mean that there aren't great opportunities and things that have been pretty knocked down. Sure. Um. What John asked, what types of healthcare services are major healthcare providers looking to acquire? In other words, what's the outlook for MA among major healthcare providers? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's been a years of very intensive MA in the primary care provider space. Uh, 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 interesting to see whether that continues after some of the big deals we've seen here, the, the Oak Street deal, which, which I believe just closed. Um, so uh, that's been a, a real a real focus. So it'll be interesting to see how many big provider networks are left for acquisition too. I'm not sure there are any. I mean, there are, but yes. Yeah, yes. I'm not sure there's that much. All right. Let's close with a look at Rochelle Walensky's re resignation from the CDC with the end of the COVID emergency. She has resigned. How is the market taking this news and where does the CDC go from here? Yeah, I'm not sure there was a big market reaction. I think this was a surprise. Um, uh, there were reports you know, um, sort of came out of the blue uh, on, a, on an afternoon last week. Um, you know, I think no one could have had a more challenging job. Uh, and uh, yeah, and, and I think reviews were both good and bad. But um, I, I think that, uh, look, I, 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 it makes total sense to me, <laughs> uh, just on a human level to want to move on as the COVID health emergency ends. That, 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 that that makes sense, and I think it also makes sense for the CDC to have uh, sort of a clean slate. So mm -hmm. um, uh, we will see who the president chooses to appoint to that position. But it's a CDC that's been through quite a, a dramatic three years, and um, you know, sort of learned a lot about its weaknesses and its strengths. Right. Well said, Josh. Okay, we're going to leave it there today. I want to thank you so much. This is such a wealth of information, both both from a health perspective and an investment perspective. Thanks for everything. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Tomorrow, the subject is art on Barron's Live. The month of May is full of prestige art auctions and several sprawling art fairs featuring global galleries. Suzanne Giorgi, Global Head of Art, Advisory, and Finance at City Private Bank, will be speaking with Penta senior writer Abby Schultz about what visitors and collectors can expect this season given a difficult economic backdrop and geopolitical tensions. It's an interesting time for the art market as it is for the stock market. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in today. Stay well and have a good day.